Aeschylus, hippo, hippo. Castanum. Castanum. Welcome to Flint Flora, a journey through the botanical diversity of Flint, Michigan. My name is Jim Cohen, and I'm a plant enthusiast. I'm excited to share my passion for plants with you and showcase the botanical wonders that are often hiding right in front of us. Come along as we discover the interesting, intriguing, and intoxicating aspects of the local flora of this exciting Rust Belt city. So we're back out here at Wilson Park again. <laughs> we can't get enough of it. Right? There are too many cool plants around. Yeah, this is a good park to spend a lot of time in. So what is this tree here that we're talking about today? Okay, so we are standing under nearby a horse chestnut, Aeschylus hippocastinum. Okay, hold on. <laughs> Say that again slowly. Okay, so this is a horse chestnut, not to be confused with a chestnut. And the scientific name, the Latin name, is Aeschylus hippocastinum. So, yeah, it's a really interesting plant for a number of reasons. So one is if you look at the leaves, which you can see up there. So we talked about the compound leaves when we were talking about uh, Kentucky coffee tree. This one also has compound leaves, but you'll notice that the leaves are arranged in a slightly different way. So rather than there being kind of a main axis, a rachis, and then little leaves coming off of that, what we see here is that there is a long petiole, so a little cylindrical green part, and at the apex of that, there are a bunch of leaf leaflets fanning out from there. So it's usually in sort of the seven to five leaflet range. Or like fingers, they're like little fingers, it's like a hand leaf. So it's interesting that you say that because this is, this is actually called palmately compound. And whenever I explain it, I think about it like a palm with your fingers radi radiating, radiating out from there. So if you think about this, your forearm would be like the petiole, and then all the leaves or leaflets that are coming out from there would be like your fingers. That makes sense. Yeah, so this type of compound leaf is less common, particularly in Michigan. And so when we are looking at this, if you see something that is compound, or palmately compound, you can't necessarily be sure that it is um, Aeschylus hippocastum, it's horse chestnut. But if you have at the, the intersection where the, I'm trying to reach this, I wish I were taller, at least for this thing right here. Ugh. If you see right there where there is one leaf and where the petiole starts from the stem, if you go, there's another one that is at the same point on the opposite side of the stem. Okay. So that type of arrangement of the leaves is called opposite. So seeing something that is opposite and palmately compound in Michigan, you can be pretty sure you're looking at Aeschylus, um, 
Aeschylus the genus, and if you have these sort of five to seven really large leaflets, you're probably looking at Aeschylus hippocastidum. Okay, I have another way of being able to tell if it's a Aeschylus hippo... <laughs> hippo... Castinum. Castinum. Okay. <laughs> these really cool lime green spiky <laughs> fruits on there. Yeah, so these are the fruits. They're sort of like medieval weaponry mace shaped at least or mace-esque on the yeah you could do some damage with that i can see if it was like on a nunchuck or something (laughs) (laughs) don't give anyone ideas (laughs) so yeah and what you can see when you're looking at this you can see the area where it actually is going to open up so these guys will open up right here to be able to disperse the seed or seeds that are inside. So do they open on their own or do they need an animal to like open it for them? No, they'll open up. You'll be able to see these dry out and open up and there is this shiny, sort of like a light, light rich brown colored seed that's um, lustrous, has a, a fairly large dull brown scar on it. And you can imagine that in here, there's a seed that is pretty substantial. And the seeds are actually used for a game that is called Conkers. And I had never heard of this game before. It's, it's not big in the U.S., although we are close to Canada, and that's a place where it is more common although it's wait so canadians are playing a game with like random fruits they find on the ground (laughs) or seeds from the fruits they find on the ground yeah but it's most common in the uk where conkers is played they're like conkers championships so i had to look this up to be able to understand what conkers is you would take the seed drill a hole in it and attach like a shoelace to it and tie an tie a, um, a knot on one end and basically what people do is hit the horse chestnuts with another conquer on a string with the goal of being able to break another person's conquer. Wait, okay, I'm, <laughs> I'm a little lost. Okay, explain that again. How are you breaking somebody else's conquer? Okay. So you have your seed with a string tied through it because you made a hole through it. And then if we were playing, you would hold yours down like this dangling your conquer and I would try to hit it. Oh, I gotcha. Okay, so you're hitting each other's conquers with your own conquer and you're trying to break the other one? Yes, that's probably the most times that someone has used conquer in a sentence recently at least. (laughs) That's um so when was this game invented? Because I just I just can't imagine people doing that. Is it still a thing now? Oh yeah, it's definitely still a thing now. It's actually, so it was invented in like 1840s. And it's continued. Before the internet. (laughs) Yes, before the internet, before, as has to be said these days, Pokemon Go. But it is, yeah, people still play it. English school children still play this game. There's our Conquers Championships. Conquers has like recently been introduced in the US. I don't know anyone who plays it. Um, it is not a game that I don't think I'd particularly enjoy. Although that said, I haven't played it, so okay, we need to get we need uh, to get that going out here. Uh, I mean, we're right across from U of M Flint. We're right next to you know the the dorms. Let's get some of these college kids down here and get some conkers going. I think all college kids are thinking 
boy, I wish that there was a horse chestnut around so I could start playing Conkers. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of growth going on in Flint, so maybe people want to start the Flink, Flint Conkers Association. I agree, yeah, or Flint Conkers Club, Flint Conkers oh, Team, that. yeah. <laughs> F- FCC, Flint Conkers Club. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's what we're, that is what we're here for. We're here to bring this level of enlightenment to the area. (laughs) Exactly. So if you're interested in playing Conkers, there are some really nice horse chestnuts here um, in Wilson Park that you can come and find the seeds shortly and start playing with your friends. So (laughs) um, that's something to do with the seeds can you can you eat them i mean i'm just thinking like christmas is coming in a couple months (laughs) so don't get these guys confused with chestnuts different sort of um different plant different families there are medicinal uses for horse chestnut um they have anti-inflammatory uses but they um apart from that they are not good to ingest So I wouldn't recommend going and eating them and saying, oh, you know, I will use these instead of chestnuts. It won't be so bad. Your, (laughs) what you roast on an open fire will not be as good as if you go to the store and get some chestnuts. Is it it poisonous? I've seen it's poisonous in some places, um, but there are a lot of secondary compounds that are produced by this plant that have been used. Um, for various types of medicinal purposes. But I think this might be a situation, again, where a little bit goes a long way in being useful medicinally, but uh, actually ingesting them uh, for food probably wouldn't work out so well. Okay, so this is our third podcast out here, Uh, and everyone so far has been poisonous, and I'm seeing a trend. (laughs) I don't know. there are a number of conditions, I think, that are associated with it. We'll have to find a, a good plant that is, I don't know if I would go so far to say edible, but maybe not actively poisonous. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> we'll do that one next week. Okay. So, um, so okay, what are these, like, purple pokey things on the ground? So those are the same, so those are little fruits that haven't matured. Yeah, so they're not all going to get so large and mature. But what's interesting about this, so the fruits, as we know, are derived from mature ovaries, which are part of the flower. So these have really beautiful flowers. They have these, they produce these large displays of flowers in the spring flowers are white they have these great markings on them Uh, the inflorescence is if I'm remembering correctly and getting my spatial reasoning correctly the inflorescences so those clusters of flowers are probably about a foot in length and they're really beautiful and as you see the uh, the stems have sort of a whooshing up pattern at the end of the branches oh yeah like they look almost like they're they're scooping something up yeah exactly and so you can see that you know or you can imagine i guess as they scoop up or whoosh up at the tips of those branches they have the they'd have these large white floral displays on them and uh, it's pretty neat and so there are a couple things about those flowers that are really quite cool 
One is that they have some markings on them, which are called nectar guides. And what those are supposed to do is help direct the pollinator to the right place in the flower. So um, when the pollinator is visiting, it knows how to orient itself to be able to take full advantage of everything that the flower has to offer. Well, that's very nice and helpful <laughs> of this tree. I think the plants try to be helpful to their pollinators. It's a very symbiotic relationship. The other is that, so when we're talking about Kentucky coffee tree, it is dioecious. And we talked about it, there were male plants and there were female plants with male flowers and female flowers. This guy is what's called andromonaceous. <laughs> Ooh, we haven't heard that word yet. No, we don't often hear about andromonaceae. Um, and plants being andromonaceous. And so I've actually seen in the literature that the plant is referred to as either being monaceous or where there are male and female flowers on the same plant or where the plant is dioecious, where there are male and female flowers on separate plants. But when we see plants being andromonaceous, it means that there are some flowers that are male and some flowers that are bisexual, meaning they have male and female parts. And so I can see how there might be some um, contradictory information, whether the plants are monoecious or dioecious. And so it's interesting seeing this very intermediate type of um, flower, or I guess intermediate type of breeding system with some plant, some flowers being only male and some being bisexual and producing male and female sexual organs. Okay, so I just want to make sure I understand. So, like, if it's just a male flower, then it's only producing pollen. And then if it's, if it's a male and a female, it's producing the pollen, but then also the fruit? Yes. Hope, yeah, it has the potential to produce the fruit. Yeah. Okay. Got it. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm impressed with all the botanical knowledge that... <laughs> I'm pay, I've been paying attention. I'm a good student. <laughs> I'm just continually amazed when we're talking about these different plants. Like I've, I've only, that's all I ever do is, oh, that's, that has pretty white flowers. And I just have such a greater appreciation for the, you know, the nuance and the intricacies and everything. That, that warms my heart. <laughs> <laughs> there are a couple other kind of interesting, or I guess I'll say notable aspects about this. One is that this plant is not native to the U.S. or North America at all. It's actually native to the Balkans. And what's happened is that, unfortunately, the plant has been damaged a lot by leaf miner moths in its native habitat, to the point that it is actually you know, thought of as being near-threatened meaning no not threatened not endangered anything like that but it's potentially on the road to that situation which is kind of an unfortunate situation and so due to development forest shrinking in size um, and due to the leaf miner moths there seem to be fewer than 10,000 known individuals of it still remaining that's, like that's, in, in the world or? No, in its native range. 
um, and possibly as few as 2,500. And where, where is that native range? So the Balkans, uh, Macedonia, Greece, that sort of area in Europe. Uh, but it's really shrunk. But as you can see, it is this beautiful ornamental tree. And I actually, I guess to continue to display my ignorance about specific plants, didn't know that it wasn't native to the U.S. And I guess I haven't seen it growing in the wild, but um, I've seen it planted in a number of places. So I was surprised not only to find that it was from Eurasia, um, but also to find out that the numbers of individuals has been decreasing for, um, been decreasing. So it is near threatened. But as you can tell, we have one here, one over there. You can't see me pointing, uh, but I am pointing to another one. So there are, the plant is certainly being able to survive um, in the horticultural trade. Do we have those moths here? I don't know if we have those here, uh, but the plants are looking pretty good. And in general, the um, horse chestnuts that I've seen have been doing pretty well. So um, I'm not 100% sure what the relationship is between those and the leaf miner moths. It is nice, I guess, on some level comforting, knowing that even if there are issues in its native range, that the long-term viability of the species seems to be assured, although unfortunately, maybe not in its native range. How did these ones get here? Horticulture, I mean, it started to be planted I want to say around the 1600s oh. in Europe, and it does a really nice job of being a ornamental tree. It's beautiful, and so um, seems to just sort of have taken off in places. And it has these really nice fruits that you see, produces beautiful flowers. So it's not surprising to me that it is the is that it is in the horticultural trade. It also has a um, it's a good shade tree. Yeah, it's really taking up a lot of space here and providing a lot of nice coverage for us, even on this sort of cool Michigan summer day. Um, so that split in the trunk, is that like, is that a common thing for this tree or? I was thinking about that because I looked at some plant, some silhouettes of the tree um, that I saw online to try to get a sense of this. And some of them show that um, show that there are multiple trunks, um, but others don't. In this situation, so we're sort of on a hillside, there's not a whole lot else around. I think a lot of that is just the way the plant is growing and the way it's able to take advantage of the light in the area. Okay, and just to kind of explain what we're looking at, it's there's a really large, maybe like three or four foot diameter trunk at the base and about mm, two, two or three feet up, it kind of splits into a V and it's like two trunks kind of um, growing out diagonally, creating this giant V. Yeah, that's a perfect description. So yeah, that, I mean, that makes sense that it's kind of like, it does, it looks like it's reaching out in a couple different directions for that sunlight. Yeah, and you can totally see it's really taking advantage of all of this light here. Um, and it's sort of moving in that direction um, in order to take advantage of sort of the break in light right there. And so it's a, a nice example of um, 
what we call a phototropic response, plants growing towards the light. I like that. Phototropic. It just I like I'm liking this tree. It just it's a smart tree. It's a nice tree and I can just it, it's I'm anthropomorphizing it. I know. It's like it's reaching its arms up with all these little hands coming off of it. <laughs> I think that's fine. Anthropomorphizing it is great. It's good it's good to think about plants moving because we often don't think that they do move, but we can see it moving, leaves moving back and forth, and the plant moving out towards the sun. That's what they do. That's cool. Cool. Um, other things about the tree? Yeah, so the la last couple of things I have to mention is, so the plant used to be in the family Hippocastanaceae, <laughs> which we sort of have to give a shout out to Hippocastanaceae, <laughs> because it no longer is an accepted plant family. It is closely related to another plant family, Aceraceae, which is also not accepted. That's the plant family that maples are in. What do you mean when you say it's not accepted? I'm sensing some controversy oh. in the botanical world. So it used to be uh, used to be controversial. It's not so controversial anymore. So Hippocastanaceae, the former Hippocastanaceae, and the former Aceraceae were these temperate offshoots of this family called Sapindaceae, which is a big tropical family. And now that we've known, we know more about the evolutionary relationships, we are putting Hippocastanaceae and Aceraceae in this larger Sapindaceae, which um, if you go back and look at Michigan or books on Michigan plants from 20 years ago, they're probably only Good. We almost got hit by one. <laughs> Falling fruit. This is a this is dangerous out here. <laughs> so if you went back and looked at plants that were traditionally in Sapindaceae, there'd only be one or two that were in Michigan. But now that there's been this reorganization, as we've learned more, uh, the family is the family of Sapindaceae is more common in Michigan because we have a number of maples, we have Aeschylus hippocastinum, and we have one of its relatives. This is an unfortunate plant to have to bring up around you and me, but it's Aeschylus glabra, the Ohio buckeye. Oh, oh, oh. Shh, don't, don't mention it around these plants. It might drop one of those fruits right on our heads. <laughs> I know, too, too close to the U of M campus. So. Um, we do act, there are a number of native species of Aeschylus, um, with Aeschylus glabra, the Ohio buckeye, being one of them, which we do find growing um, native in Michigan mm -hmm. as well. But there are a couple other species of Aeschylus native to the, um, native to the eastern U.S. And the genus, while only made up of about, of about a dozen species, can be found all throughout the temperate regions of the northern hemisphere. So in Europe, Asia, the America or North America, and actually the closest relative of Aeschylus hippocastinum is found in Japan. So a little shake up in the <laughs> little shake up in the um, order of these plants. <laughs> yeah, it happens, but we get used to it. Okay, cool. Anything else? No, that's it. That's, uh, I think, you know, if you're out here in Wilson Park walking over towards the Gandhi statue, check out a plant, look for a plant that has these opposite leaves that are palmately compound that have these 
really interesting mace-like fruits with the lustrous seeds in them. Or if you're here around the spring, look out for these large displays of white flowers. And if you find them, any of these, take some pictures and hit me up on Twitter at Botanicoan. I'd love to see the pictures. Or on Facebook at Flint Podcasting Company. Yeah, we'll see you next time. This episode of Flint Flora was hosted by me, Jim Cohen, edited by Stacey Sherman, and produced by Flint Podcasting Company. For more episodes, find and subscribe on iTunes or visit Flint Podcasting Company at flintpodcasting.com.